0: This is God's word. The passage that we're going through today, I think I'm not, I I think we're, we're pretty far disconnected from the original audience. I mean, there's 2000 years around that much time has separated between the original church that this letter was written to and where we are today. And you know, I, I wouldn't imagine a lot of things that I read that were 2000 years old would continue to apply to us in the same way. But reading through this passage this week, like there was, there was this interesting moment, even as like in the early parts of this week when I was starting to kind of formulate some ideas, I was like, oh, this, is, this sermon's gonna be like a real pain in the neck for me. And it's because I tried to imagine the scenario of where these churches were because remember, we, we, have, we have to consider the historical context here. This is Peter, you know, Peter, one of, one of Jesus' closest pals, one of the top dog apostles, uh, the first pope, if you ask a Catholic. Um, okay, quiet, Zach. Um, and he's writing, he's, he's an established leader within the early church, and he's writing a letter to a group of Christians, but this group of Christians is experiencing suffering but they're not just experiencing suffering because of the normal qualms of life like sickness and heartache and disappointment and depression. They're experiencing suffering because they're experiencing one of the earliest waves of what would be many waves of Roman instituted persecution against the church. And, we, and this is not like a, like a strange, untalked about topic. In, 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 I think, a lot of churches. A lot of us are, are familiar with the idea that there is some, that the early Christians did have to endure a lot. But you think, like, throughout this letter, he, Peter is consistently reminding them, like, hey, I know that you're suffering, but you, you've just got to hold on. There's a greater hope in front of you, and Jesus is actually working. Jesus is actually present in your suffering, even though I'm sure it probably sucks. And so in the past couple of weeks, and the passages leading up to this one, I think two things were made very clear, and we didn't read these passages today, so I'll just present them really, really quickly. The first one is that God has made all of his children into a new nation. Like, we can be Arizonans, and we can be Tucsonans and Americans and North Americans and everything else. But ultimately, at the real core of our being, if we put faith in Jesus, then that's our truest identity above all else. The second thing he said was that because we are God's people in a new country, under laws that are not made by Christians, that we're going to be exiles in this new land. We're gonna be strangers. We're not gonna fully connect with the authorities or the powers that be. And so that's the background leading to these verses that we're about to get to. But Peter is about to answer an inevitable question, which is, what can we do? Because the Romans are, they're, they're burning our scriptures and they're closing down our meeting places and they're hurting our priests. And they're, they're, they're harming people and we're afraid and we're probably a little anxious. So Peter, give us that green light. Give us that green light that says we can throw that middle finger up to the Roman emperors. That because we're part of God's nation, we don't, we're not accountable to Rome anymore. We can finally do our own thing. Peter, give us that green light, please. And he doesn't. And so that's why I was like, man, I don't want to preach about this. (laughs) So, what does Peter say? He tells them, commands them, that they are to be subject to every human institution, not just to the emperors, but to the governors that work underneath them, to follow their laws, to play by their rules. And when the time came, because Rome, at this point, and Rome throughout most of its history, was a very religious place. One of the ways Rome would kind of gather all of the random uh, scattered cultures underneath the gigantic umbrella that Rome was, was to unite them religiously. They wanted all of the people, regardless of where their background was, to be able to sacrifice to local deities And most importantly, they needed to be able to recognize that the emperor was divine, that he was truly godlike. And Peter is saying, like, you're you're supposed to follow the rules. But when that time comes and they say, proclaim the deity of the emperor, you say no. You don't form a little gang to beat up the guards when they come to arrest you. You let them take you where you have to go. And you know what? You're going to die, probably. And that's what Peter's saying. They were not to riot. They were not to inflict violence in return for violence. They were to recognize that in a way, God had given every government, as he does to this day, reign in rewarding good for good, but also punishing evil. And when the time came that God's children were demanded to do evil, they would decline, and whatever comes from there comes. So I've got a few points that I'd like to make about this passage. Here's my first one. It's called The Plain and Boring Christian Life. The Plain and Boring Christian Life. As I was preparing for the sermon this week, I found out about this letter that was written from a Roman governor to the emperor Trajan. And this probably put us in the second century. So we're a couple generations in the future from where Peter's at. It's a very, it's, historically, it's a very important document because it actually describes just how the Romans viewed Christians in their territories. And it's... Looking back on it again, that two thousand year period gives a lot, a lot of room for hindsight. But he's basically saying uh, it's, it's almost like a, a letter from a low, from like a mid-level manager to like the CEO, and he's like, "Hey, uh, there's these Christians in my territory, and I'm really not sure what to do about them because they're criminals because they won't proclaim you as divine." And they won't perform their sacrifices. But what I'm struggling with is they don't do anything else wrong. There's like that's the only crime they're committing. And well, it was interesting because most of the rebel groups that Roman leaders were used to were violent. They planned some some form of rebellion or opposition or overthrow. But he's literally saying, he's like, not only are these Christians not, like, coming together to, to commit crime, do you know what they do when they get together? They, 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 they gather around. They sing a hymn to Jesus. They, they eat some plain, ordinary food. And then they pledge the crimes that they're not going to commit. Like, that's what he's saying. He's like, they literally sit around and they sing to their God, they act out of all their foolish superstition, and then they talk about how they're not going to commit adultery, how they're not going to lie, how they're not going to steal things, and how they're not going to hurt people. What am I supposed to do with these people? Like there's, you can really sense this genuine sense of like, they're a band of criminals, but they're the most low-key criminals I've ever, I've ever encountered. I don't know what to do with them. And he's acknowledging, he's like, we're, we're, he's like, so when we, what we do is we we discover the Christians, we give them an opportunity to, to proclaim the divinity of the emperor as we should. And then, and then we give them a few opportunities to, to repent of their Christianity. And if they don't, we kill them. And sometimes we just find a few of them and we torture them because we know there's something deeper than this. But there wasn't. These were just Christians who had listened to the words of Peter all these years later, and it said, Okay, we can live in a world that challenges and criticizes our dignity, takes us away from our rights and our entitlements, and we'll maybe one day kill us. And what we'll do is we'll gather and we'll love and we'll seek Jesus' face and we'll do good. I mean, this was not just the life of the early church. We see this in the Old Testament too. We see this in Joseph when he was in Egypt. Egypt. We see this in Daniel when he was in Babylon. We see this in the three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All these dudes lived in not Israel. They lived in areas where the, the powers that be had no interest or desire in seeking the face of the God of Israel. And yet, they were not a band of rebels They were not trying to gather their forces to resist these cruel and oppressive kings who definitely were cruel and oppressive. They knew how to keep their heads down as needed, but that didn't stop them from still serving as Christ would. Now, the thought may come, as I'm sure it came to the early church that Peter's writing to, but John You literally just said that these are God's people. Shouldn't God's people deserve better than this? If they're God's people, then why are they the world's rags? Why why does everyone else get to treat, treat them like dirty washcloths? If they're God's people, they should be respected. They should be held with dignity. And you know what? My answer to that question is you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. God's people of everyone should have dignity, should be treated well. Because all of us, Christians and not, carrying this image of God should be loved and treated well. But what's the difference? If we're Christians, then our master is Jesus. And look at the example that he set for us. Son of God, King of creation, beaten up for nothing, nailed to a cross and made to look like a chump, embarrassed, not respected, not loved. See, that's the thing. The life of a Christian is not a life of no dignity. It's a life where we recognize that our dignity is so great that we're gonna lay it down for everyone around us as needed. It means that we allow ourselves to be mistreated at times. That doesn't mean that we say whatever to things like injustice. It doesn't mean that we're passive. I'll get to that, so don't worry. But the life of a Christian is someone who has dignity, but is also able to lay it down. And just like Christ, he sees nothing to be able to lay his life down for those who he loves. Because the simple fact is, even, even today, there are going to be laws and customs and things within our culture that are going to challenge our dignity. I feel like ever since I was in college, this might be a little bit of a, an aside, but I feel like for a long time in my like, church experience, we were being like, it was like we were getting that like rocky pep talk, like, man, just get, your, get ready, because eventually they're going to say, Christians outlawed punishment, death, like that's gonna happen like next year in this country. Like I always feel like we kinda got that like pep talk of like, oh man, they're gonna be throwing us in ovens pretty soon, I gotta be ready, I can't wait to, to you know put my life on the line. And like, I don't know, I think a lot of that was a little, a little sensationalisty. I think it was a little exaggerated. But I, I mean legitimately, like what I, what I do acknowledge, what I do see in the culture around us is this, I see that we are inheriting a Western culture that has had, at the very least, influence from Christian ideas for hundreds of years. There is no separating where we are today as a culture from the Christian influence that got us here. But I also see this. I see that Western culture is starting to just lose interest in these types of structured religions. Now you could say, oh, well, they haven't been real Christians for, yeah, whatever. But what I'm really saying is like, I don't, I don't think that we're gonna get thrown in ovens for being Christians in the next six months, even if we do live close to California. But I think that ultimately, there, that we, we should genuinely expect, maybe not violence, persecution, but changes in the world around us. I think what's interesting about Rome, Rome didn't just wake up one day and decide, I really hate Christians. No, Rome had over time developed this idea that the peace of Rome, which was a a good idea, like that the flourishing and the human development of their people was dependent on religious sameness. So it's not that they just hated Christians all of a sudden. It's that they had goals and aspirations that Christians were now in the way of. And so when I see the world kind of changing around us, I don't think like, oh yeah, people are just going to hate Christians. Christians are Christians. Ah. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there may come a time when the values and beliefs that we hold as Christians will no longer be compatible with the people who are making decisions. That doesn't mean that we are to like combat this with like abrupt violence, whether it's violence that's physical or even violence that's in our hearts or in our words but I do think we should expect some kind of change to occur over time. And that might be something as simple as maybe you tell people that you're a Christian and people start to think of you as kind of dated in your views, maybe kind of uneducated. Maybe there are obstacles to... uh, growth in your job field because you're, uh, of your faith. Uh, trust me, I'm not trying to like fear monger at all. I'm not trying to wave this like, you know, big caution flag. I, I think I'm, I'm really just genuinely trying to put two and two together from what we see. But the real thing is, is that when the rubber meets the road and we see ourselves as Christian losing status in the world around us, when we see our dignity being challenged, we don't fight back. We don't rebel. We don't stage overthrows. We don't organize disobedience. Until that point, we're just acting like Jesus and living our lives and and doing good and just allowing what's happening to happen that we can be criticized and accused, yet remain silent. So what's the next point? We bless the world by doing good. We bless the world by doing good. Now, when, in my first point, it could almost come across like I'm uh, uh, arguing for this like Christian separation, or like we're, we're Christian, so we just kind of become really, really passive in the world around us. Excuse me. And I don't believe that at all. Again, look at the examples that we used earlier. We talked about Joseph in Egypt. We talked about Daniel in Babylon. We could even bring up dudes like Ezra and Nehemiah in Persia. These were individuals who had legitimate influence and relationship with very high ruling authorities and it's not because they were publishing Christian blogs talking about how terrible everything was. They were, I'm sure they were holding their opinions. I'm sure they understood what was unjust and what was wrong with the society around them. But at the end of the day, what they worked for was something that even their unjust kings could empathize with. They were working for the good of their people. They were working for a common good that loves and honors the, 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 the image of God that all of us, Christian and not, still bear. Because none of these cultures revered or respected the God of Israel. Persians weren't doing that. Assyrians weren't doing that. The Greeks weren't doing that. We can go down the line. In fact, they probably looked down on the God of Israel And yet, because these individuals had committed themselves to the collective good of the lands they were in, they had obtained love and trust from powerful individuals and were able to influence and bring about change. And we know the story with Daniel. Daniel was really, really cool with the king until the day that he wasn't and got thrown in the lion's den. So even then, Daniel had a breaking point when he eventually had to say, actually, I can't, I can't quite go with you that far. I can, I can hang out in Babylon, you know, but I can't, I can't bow the knee to the king, unfortunately. And if that means I'm lion food, I'm lion food. This is what Peter means in this passage that we read when he said that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, again, even in this very, very early stage of Christianity when this letter was written, there were critics of Christianity. There were those who were trying to discredit who the Christians were because they were not part of this, like, status quo And so they would make up things about the Christians and say, ah, they're just a bunch of rebels. They're just staging overthrows. It's just like all the lies that were told about Jesus before he was crucified. But how do we keep our reputation and our perspective in the eyes of an unchristian world from being tainted? We seek good. We do good in the community that we're open to. I mean, think of the early church. One thing that just kind of hit me for the first time uh, this week was that when Jesus was giving out the Great Commission, he also gave the disciples the ability to heal the sick and the ability to cast out demons. Well, what does that mean? That means that Jesus was not just empowering them to be present with people who needed to know about the gospel but that he was specifically helping them to meet with the most unloved and unwanted people in their community, which were the demon-possessed and the sick. It meant that Jesus was empowering them to not just spread the word, but also to bless the broken in their communities. Some of the earliest writings that we have from the very early church, some of it even in the Bible, continues to reinforce that these early Christians who were still looking over their shoulders because of the persecution that was over their heads were still committed to taking care of the poor in their church and outside. They were still committed to spending time with the lowly and the unloved. They were still supporting the widows. They were still taking care of the children. All the most vulnerable we're still being loved by the hands and feet of Jesus. There's a there, there's historians who have said that one of the reasons why the Christian Church grew so much in the first few centuries was that in Rome there were a handful of like really brutal plagues that would come up in Rome, and you know you got to think. Medicine 2,000 years ago probably wasn't top-notch. They probably just, you know, smack you with a leech or something like that. But when these towns would become just hit by this horrible plague and everyone's getting sick, the people who were still healthy would leave. They would abandon the town so they didn't get sick. But the Christians would stay knowing that whatever sickness was there could kill them, but also confident that even if they lost their lives, they didn't actually lose anything because if Jesus was laying down his life for his friends, then they could do the same. And you just had bands of Christians who were staying in these plague-infested communities and just offering minimal but really helpful medical care for these people. Like Christians were putting themselves out there as those who didn't care if they died because it was worth it to give their lives rather than seek it. That's incredible. That's incredible. So, this was not a passive church. So it's not a passive church. Even uh, I heard, I uh, I think it was a a bishop one time speak about how he was really frustrated with the idea that the early Christian church was very anti-intellectual, like they were just about love and charity, but they couldn't put, you know, two and two together. He criticized that. And he was like, not only did you have these very self-sacrificial individuals in the Christian community You had philosophers, you had philosophers who were taking the ideas of the Bible and could go head to head with some of the sharpest minds in the Roman world. These dudes were writing full on theologies that we still read to this day. They were doing good, but not just in service, they were doing good in the ways that they sought and understood and taught the things of God. This was not passive. Even in submission to cruel powers, they were not passive. And so what does it look like to do good when uh, we don't have a plague hanging over us? Or, I mean, I don't know. We still sort of do. So I think we just look to our lives, right? Like, we have people here work in education. It's a great place to work. You have the opportunity to work with children who just for like a chunk of hours every day, you have the opportunity to share like love and, and and compassion with. Depending on the neighborhood that your schools are at, you might have the opportunity to show this kid a love that their family is not actually giving them. Like imagine the privilege of being able to share a love that isn't just parental, but it's genuinely divine. That's a blessing. I mean, think medical workers, right? You guys have inherited thousands and thousands of years of medical advancement. You have some of the sharpest technology right at your fingertips. And you can literally apply one of the most direct analogies for Jesus' relationship with us. That you can be a healer to the sick. What a blessing. And we can go down the list, right? We have trade workers who are doing beautiful things with their hands, we have social workers who are standing in the middle of some of the harshest, most trauma-ridden communities in our city. We have scientists and engineers who are committing their lives to research, to, to bless the, the broken status of human life. And even if you don't fall under any of those random fields, like there are still ways that you can be persevering towards something good that blesses the community around you, even if it's something super small. I do think this is also a great invitation to be reflective too. Because I think we're all aware that there are some jobs that are not good. And I don't just mean like they're tedious, like there are legitimately jobs that build entire empires and builds entire industries around deceit, taking advantage of like the poor or the elderly, and the uninformed who employ really manipulative and deceitful sales tactics. Look, I I get it. Work is hard. We We all got bills to pay. But at the end of the day, we all, especially as Christians, should be giving ourselves a great deal of discernment on what we're doing just with our time. And we all know that for, that's just 40 hours a week. That's just what we get paid to do. We're not limited to our jobs. The spare time that we have and that we use, it doesn't have to be you know, committing hours and hours to every soup kitchen, every food uh, bank, or whatever the case may be. But we should be committing ourselves to good in everything that we do, even if it's just in being loving spouses or good friends to a, to a strong community. These are all good things. And so the last point I want to make is why is this compelling? Or I guess uh, my point is a question and uh, I will answer the question. But the question is why is this compelling? I've been going through this idea of compelling community. The church should be something that presents itself to a world that kind of makes them go, that's that's interesting. I want to I wanna know more about that. This itself was almost a tricky question, because it's like, how do you spin? Like, what's compelling about listening to your government? <laughs> like, what's compelling about obeying traffic laws and paying tickets? <laughs> and I thought I had to think about that a lot. And eventually, uh, I think, uh, almost poetically, I guess, I wound up at the time of Jesus' arrest. Because when Jesus was arrested before he was crucified, the guards kind of swarmed around him. And one man, most likely the author of the letter that we're in, Peter, drew a knife and he swung it and he cut a guard's ear off. And then everyone restrained him. And Jesus wasn't like, hey, dude, thanks for looking out. Appreciate it. He, he, was, he was upset. He said, don't you think I could deliver myself if I needed to? Don't you understand what needs to happen, what needs to be done? See, Jesus actually understood that in giving his life, he wasn't losing. He was winning, And that the loser wasn't the one who was dying, it was the one holding the knife. Because Jesus hits him with probably one of the most important verses we can use when we talk about this idea of using force to provoke change, even if it's godly change. He says, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Peter, you want to use that knife and swing it around and do so in a way that's going to bring about the kingdom? Be my guest, but you're going to die just as embarrassing as you're standing before me right now. The winner doesn't hold the sword. The winner puts his life down. And so why is this compelling? Again, I ask the question, and here's my answer. Because if Jesus is wrong then he who lives by the sword doesn't die by the sword. If Jesus is wrong, then the guy who lives by the sword is actually the great victor. He's the one who wins the day. It really is might that makes right in that case. If Jesus is wrong, then all we have as human beings is is we're just submitting to powerful, cruel, punishing individuals. And that the one who wins the day is not the humble, but he's the guy with the biggest gun. If he who lives by the sword doesn't die by it, if Jesus is wrong, then the guy who wins is always the richest and the wealthiest and the strongest and the most powerful and the most privileged. And if that is true, I mean, that's just kind of a bummer of a narrative to live in. That it's really just the strongest guy who gets to win history. But if what Jesus said is right, then we actually don't have to live as though the guy with the biggest gun is the winner. If Jesus is right, then we can believe That God is building his church out of humble, boring, everyday people who are committing their lives to good and sacrificing themselves for other, not because they're perfect, but because they've hitched their wagon to someone who was. And that beyond our frailty and our fragility and our imperfection, that Jesus is preparing a great and perfect world that will correct everything in front of us, everything that we see. And if we learn anything about this brief story between Jesus and Peter, it's that true power isn't holding the blade and striking your enemies. True power is in laying down your life. Because Jesus said, whoever seeks To save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will truly find it. This is my last little anecdote I'll share, and then we'll start closing. Um, There is this uh, dude from uh, Civil War history who always was really uh, compelling to me because he, he, he like epitomized like this moral conflict I had. His name was John Brown. Anybody familiar with John Brown? Okay, John Brown was a southern abolitionist. So he was fighting for the abolition of slavery. And at a certain point in his abolition work, John Brown decided that it was no longer feasible for abolition to be achieved without violence. And so John Brown gathered up a small militia of armed former slaves and other abolitionists, and they stormed uh, a military stronghold, and they killed some people, and they lost some people, and at the end of the day, John Brown failed the mission, he was found guilty of his crimes, and he was executed. And this was like so conflicting for me because I was like, this dude is putting it all on the line to fight for something good. Why can't I be happy with what this dude's doing? And it's literally because he's Peter holding the knife. He's Peter trying to cut and stab his way into justice. When in reality, we have some incredible examples. Martin Luther King, I think, standing above them all of someone who opposed an unjust status quo but without getting blood on his hands. And ironically, horribly, that was a cause that did cost him his life. But if he was a true follower of Jesus, which I believe he was, he would not be ashamed to lay his life down for that cause. And so what hit me about John Brown was that he had a quote essentially where he said, I one day came to the realization that I was a fool to think that this national sin could be purged by any means other than bloodshed. And I thought, dang man, you're like so close to actually getting it right. Because the bloodshed that we needed to be made right was not the blood of our enemies. Because in the cosmic story of Jesus Christ in a sinful world, if he were to come and strike down his enemies, he would have struck down every last one of us. But the blood that was shed was not the blood of the enemies. It was the blood of a perfect man so that his enemies could be made his friends. And I think we should meditate on that. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I thank you for the, for the pitter-patter of rain that we're hearing outside. Um, I always thank you for a cloudy day in Tucson. And I thank you for a Sunday when we can come before you and just think about uh, who we are and most importantly how you are and who you are and just the love and the grace and the care that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you prepare us now for the Lord's Supper. We would meet with you. where We would dine with you. And we would remember the great sacrifice and great cost of your goodness. Um, Yeah, I pray that you would uh, speak to each and every one of us here and just uh, give us a, a great deal of strength and courage and a life of submission and humility. And I pray that when we find ourselves clenching our fists and reaching for our daggers, figurative and especially literal, that you would just touch us with that spark of Christ and remind us that our lives are not meant to take the lives of others but to lay ours down. And not to do so passively, but to do good in the world around us. And that even as we fail to do good, because we will, your grace is still sufficient for us. And we can trust that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.